Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the editor of the Toolkit. My guest today is the great French filmmaker Bertrand Tabernay. Like a lot of the French filmmakers that came up in Paris in the 1960s, Bertrand learned his craft in the screening rooms and the cinematheque and talking and thinking about great cinema with a new generation of filmmakers, the French New Wave. And that love affair with cinema has culminated in this beautiful three-hour documentary that Mr. Tabernet premiered at the New York Film Festival last fall called My Journey Through French Cinema, which is now coming to theaters from the Cohen Media Group here in New York. It's at the Quad Cinema, where they're also doing a retrospective of his work. This is a little bonus uh, episode. I recorded this back in the fall, so I want to make sure we get this out while uh, the movie's in theaters. But we will continue to do uh, one interview every Thursday, as we have been doing. So, so this Thursday, there will be a new podcast with Edgar Wright on Baby Driver. Next week, David Lowry on A Ghost Story, followed by the next week, uh, Matt Reeves, uh, War of the Planet of the Apes. So this is just a little bonus one, um, and I hope you enjoy it. This is a, it's a great film, but it's also, I think, something that has a lot to offer um, filmmakers as well as film historians. And so here's my conversation from back in the fall with Mr. Tavernay. I'd seen Martin Scorsese's journey through American cinema and, and Italian cinema. And so at first I thought the, the comparisons of your film to him, his were kind of were, were lazy. But there was something, I, I didn't know the story of your childhood and uh, the important role that films played and that you, you know, Marty was, had asthma as a kid and that kind of definitely create a different relationship with cinema for him. And, and you were sick as a child too. And it really seems as if not just you grew up a film lover, but films became this like, integral part of your, your biography and your story. Uh, yes, maybe it's something I share with Martin. This is that uh, maybe cinema help us uh, to, f to have the courage to face the world. Because we were, uh, I was fragile. I was uh, had the prom problems in the lungs. I, I could not run. I could not uh, uh, exercise. Uh, I was weak. Uh, I was badly fed during the the occupation of my country. Um, the uh, and maybe Martin Scorsese helped me to by. Um, giving me the courage to speak about myself. Because when he spoke about his parents, mm -hmm. I said, if he did it, I can do it. Because the, the approach, my film, was different from his film about the American cinema, oh, where, yeah. where he, 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 he talks about the director for three minutes. I wanted, from the beginning, to, uh, I did not know who would be the director who would pick up, but if I was picking up one, I would like to go deep in him mm -hmm. and to, in, uh, to at least spend 20, 25, uh, and sometimes in the series, the mini series which has to come, I think I, I have like 39 or 40 minutes on Julien Duvivier. But I wanted to, uh, the, the other difference <laughs> is that <laughs> Martin Scorsese did his film with a, with a lot of help, <laughs> uh, with many people, big crew, a lot of assistance, a lot of support. I mean, as a joke, I can say we were we did we were five people to do that film, 
uh, five people in a cave, uh, in a cellar, uh, down, down. I mean, it's, uh, uh, um, it's, uh, that was very, very uh, um, artisanal work. I mean, that I had my, the editor crew, the editor, my producer, and one person who was finding the, the document, trying to get hold of the right, mm -hmm. writing, oh, right, writing yeah. um, 1,200 letters to get the authorization to every, a, a lot, a lot of <laughs> physical work. <laughs> and how long did it take you? Four years. Four years. Four years. Um, four years to just to between uh, getting the financement, mm -hmm. convincing people that it was an interesting project, and when we had the help of Gomo and Pate, it was easier. Um, trying to uh, <laughs> discuss with the people who own, were owning catalog, find. Uh, uh, if the firm I was talking about were available. So sometimes the screenplay changed many, many times because th there were some films which were in, I was speaking, some directors, and then they were out, and they were in again, they were out. They were in and suddenly were discovering that it's impossible because you don't have any restored material. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so th there's still so many films to save. Right. Uh, that was the first thing I discovered. And, and then also the writing uh, of the film. The beginning was always obvious with me. With, it was uh, the war and the fact that I have TBs and my discovery of Jacques Becker. Mm -hmm. After that, slowly and slowly, like in a fiction film, the dramaturgy of the film impose some choice and refuse some other choice, not for a question that the film were better, mm -hmm. because there are some directors which I worship, which I adore, which I could not put in the film. They, like in a fiction film, when you are writing a scene, you are very happy with the scene, mm -hmm. and suddenly you discover that the, the characters do not want to, to say those words. It, the, the scene has not its place in the way the, the screenplay has, uh, uh, has moved, has uh, changed. The, the first director, as you said, that you um, spend a lot of time with is uh, Jacques Becker. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like a very specific way to start because uh, your admiration from him, it was, it was that he had taken lessons from American films, the use of yeah. space, the, the kind of lack of false poetics, the mm -hmm. pacing, um, but that he had absorbed those and, and made them his own, made them, and also made yeah. them very French, in, yeah. in, in particular in terms of story and plot. And that seems to me to be a really apt place for you to start because for your generation of filmmakers, you really, I don't think people realize that it really came with after the war and seeing so many American films, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that was such, in that, so that, that how to, what, what you take from and what you admire from American films and, and making them both your, yours and, and making them French, mm -hmm. right? Is that, yeah. that was the lesson of Becker? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, what I say about Becker, how he absorbed the American film, 
But contrary to some of the directors of my generation, who sometimes were in France and they were redoing American film in French, in France and in French, mm -hmm. and and that was bad. Right. That was bad. That was bad in terms of uh, the police station were not French. The behavior of the cops was not French. That it was um, American. Even the 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 French laws were not respected. Um, it, but it was bad because it, those films were never selling mm -hmm. in America because they look like a bad copy of what the Americans were doing. But Becker was absorbing. He, un he understood that the rhythm of the film, that the fact that uh, the, 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 the screenplay, uh, the way it, was, it, it had to be written, the pace, uh, the utilization of space, of the music, of jazz, that was important. At the same time, the, if, you, if you want to know f France, the f if you want to feel what f was France like, mm -hmm. the, the film of Becker are oh, superb. Oh, yeah. They give you the spirit of the liberation. They give you, uh, in Antoine Antoinette, Rendez-vous de Juillet, they give you the feeling of the 1900 in Casque d'Or. They give you a great feeling of the period, of the class relationship at that time. Of, uh, uh, they give you the, f the feeling of what was a jail uh, in, in the 50s, in Le Trou. Uh, they give you all that. Um, uh, they, 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 they are incredibly French. Mm -hmm. and, and the relationship between the French cinema, the French way of making film, and the American cinema is a kind of recurrent theme. In my, in, in, in my movie, in my documentary. Mm -hmm. Because, again, it's uh, uh, the same thing happened with Melville, mm -hmm. who, who's, who was absorbing hundreds of American films. And what he's doing is the opposite of Becker. He's, he's copying some sets some wallpaper, <laughs> some shots. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, some of his films, there is one of his films where you have a scene which is shot for shot, odds against tomorrow. The film of Robert Wise. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same, the way he was doing it uh, was creating something which was the opposite of those films that he was copying. The atmosphere is not the same, the mood is different, the pace is different, the way he's using music is totally different. So in his mind, he thought that he was imitating William Wyler, and in reality, I think what he does is closer to Robert Bresson, <laughs> and it's, it's the opposite of Wyler. So that, for me, is fascinating. The same way that Sauté also was a great admirer of American mm -hmm. cinema. And his first film, uh, one of his first films, uh, Class to Risk, he always said that um, he had, what he had in mind was a, a Western, mm -hmm. and that Belmondo should act like Lee Marvin in Seven Men From Now. That, that it must have the same charm mm -hmm. and the same the way of moving like a cat, like Marvin. 
like, uh, so, uh, so many of those directors mm -hmm. were influenced by uh, American cinema. A lot of them were. I'm trying to figure out the timeline. It, it seems as if you arrived in Paris right around 1960, because I know you had visited... Uh, um, I really, I really was in Paris in the 60s, because even yeah. before, I was, I was in a boarding, uh, boarding house? Boarding uh, school, yeah. Boarding school. Yeah. I was in boarding school, and I had the right uh, to go in Paris only if I work well uh, <laughs> some of the Sundays. Uh, so, so I, I could not say that during, uh, uh, during most most of the fifties, I was in Paris only during the holidays mm -hmm. and and some Sundays. But then, by the sixties, you were you yeah. Were, uh, uh, sun, uh, uh, the first uh, when I I, I was t studying philosophy, uh -huh. I was in Paris. And I was every day at the cinema, and I was very, very bad at school, and I failed. <laughs> but, but I mean, that was—I mean—that's one thing that uh, the Cinematheque and the amount of filmmakers that were um, that were regularly just going there and in, in, in absorbing cinema, and then becoming collaborators and supporters and, and, and a whole film movement that came came out of that. You, you were part of that, right? I was part of that. Uh, well, not only at the Cinematheque, there was a few art cinemas which um, sometimes you were, you were getting a lot of people who became after that directors. Mm -hmm. um, one of the cinemas was the Studio Parnasse. Uh, near near Montparnasse, yeah? uh, every Tuesday uh, after the film, sometimes two films, mm -hmm. there was a double bill. The the director of the cinema was uh, making some games with the the audience which uh, uh, stayed in the cinema and not left, asking questions where you could win a ticket. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then having uh, asking you to speak about the film. It's where I heard Chabrol, Rivet. Uh, I heard Rivet defending the Last Hunt, a western directed by Richard Brooks. Mm -hmm. I heard Chabrol talk about uh, the rise and fall of Lex Diamonds, mm -hmm. but Butiker. Um, uh, I had so that was a moment. The Tuesday night at the Parnas, you we were all <laughs> seeing each other, and many of us, the people who were there, mm -hmm. became uh, screenwriters, directors, mm -hmm. writers. Uh, uh, many, many of them after uh, were already writing in the Cahiers du Cinéma or positive mm -hmm. on that. So. You had great moments like that, mm -hmm. that was very, very, very exciting. One, one thing that was very clear to me in, in watching the film is, is that these filmmakers that you admire, mm -hmm. um, you either got to know them or knew a lot of people that worked with them or, or spent enough, I mean, these are people that you're passionate about. And yeah. so um, who they are as people is, mm -hmm. is, is very much in this movie as yeah. well. And it's interesting because uh, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time is Jean Renoir, mm -hmm. and uh, I learned a lot watching your film. But I, my sense of who he was, um, was was changed after seeing your film, who he was as a person. 
And I was wondering how much you are connecting who they are as people and, and their films as you know them or as you know of their flaws and, and who they are as people, do you have trouble separating the two or, or is, it, is, it, is, no. is it separating the art from the person? I, I, don't have, I don't have a problem. It's a problem which exists in some biographies written in this country uh -huh. where you try to explain the work sometimes only by the behavior of the director. Right. Uh, uh, there had been a very bad book written about Jolossi saying that the fact that he was obsessed by a uh, high salary at the end of his life, or by uh, uh, having everything paid, uh, um, uh, changed his way of directing. I mean, you cannot explain Monsieur Klein, which is a masterpiece, mm -hmm. with that. Because it's a superb film, mm -hmm. and it's a film which is sharp, intelligent. So sometimes you have to separate. Sometimes you can understand things. I mm -hmm. mean, I, I'm, sometimes uh, 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 the behavior of somebody can ex can give you it can give the light, it's some insight uh, into into uh, their work, in, yeah. into into the world. Sometimes not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, uh, and and the most important thing is not to to apply to take the conduct of somebody and suddenly to judge all, all his films right. before. Renoir behaved terribly, horribly, uh, in 1940. Right. No other important director behaved like that. No, he's the only one. The only one. But I mean, Renoir in 1940, was not exactly the Renoir of the Crime de Chagange. He was not, because Renoir was, he, I think he described himself as a cork on a river. He was, yeah, the uh, floating cork on a river. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, Renoir in 1936 or seven, he's uh, close to the Communist Party. Right. He's close to the Communist and suddenly, the time the the mood change and he he, he goes with uh, he goes with the current you can reproach that mm -hmm. you can have that but i mean that doesn't affect the 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 my judgment on tony on la grande illusion on la bête humaine on the day in the country mm -hmm. which are for me masterpieces right. whatever is behavior sometimes the his behavior can explain things in his film, like the fact that when he had a difficulty, uh, he was disappearing. And he, he was letting the people try to solve it. That explained why the film was not, was, uh, not finished in the country. But on the other hand, maybe he felt unconsciously that it was better that way. Yeah. That, and, and the film is better unfinished. As a 40, it's like 40 minutes, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, he was, he was somebody who was, uh, 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 on, on other occasions, he was superb when he was um, accepting an idea given by somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea was becoming his own. Right. Because he had the intelligence of accepting it. 
that that's very important that's uh, uh, to see that the difference sometimes between a good director and a bad director is not only his taste is not only but sometimes if if we will have the intelligence mm -hmm. of accepting a suggestion made by a production designer made by a screenwriter an actor and Renoir was good at that he was feeling that uh, changing a line was was good after uh, in in when 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 he took he started talk about his work he overdid that he said that he had always changed everything which was not true mm -hmm. i mean when you read the screenplay of le crime de monsieur lange a masterpiece you discover that jules berry who was very well known for his faculty of ad-libbing dialogue in practically all his film that did not change a word of the screenplay. <laughs> this is where... And, and well, after, he became one of those storytellers. He became, yeah, he became, he, he, he became uh, somebody like uh, Hawks uh, who reinvented right. the, the story of his films. Yeah. Um, uh, but sometimes the real story is as interesting. And again, I never want to dismiss it. The fact that everybody thought that a very well-known shot in the criminal Solange was done in one take. Right. I show that it's not true. Mm -hmm. But the fact that doesn't make Renoir less creative, on the opposite. Yeah. The fact that he had the genius of making you believe it was, is as important mm -hmm. than succeeding to do that. The same way that Hitchcock did with Hope. Um, your admiration for the great actor uh, Jean Gabin is uh, is very clear in, in this. And there's one part you really break down how he thought as a filmmaker. Yeah, he was he was very aware of the space. Yeah, he was very aware. I mean, it, it's it really I watching that breakdown of how you did. It, I almost got the feeling that he, he could have been a great filmmaker himself. Yeah, he didn't want it. He didn't want. He, he, he was respecting the the, the real director. Yeah. he was making a list between the people. Was his, his goal? This one is a metteur, mm -hmm. a metteur en scène. He had a great admiration. This one is not. Right. My question for you is, I mean, he's obviously great. Do you think that that is part of being a great actor, is having that awareness, or is that just something that was unique to him? No. No. I mean, there is nothing, uh, there is nothing which, which is, um, how do you say, uh, obligatory. I mean, uh -huh. that's a, uh, I think in, in the case, uh, of Gamma, it was helping him mm -hmm. because he had that sense, but it's not something you learn, mm -hmm. you have it. Maybe he had that coming from the musical, from being a, a singer, he, he had the feeling of space, mm -hmm. that. but you have actors who never had that and they are also very, very, very good. Yeah. I mean, you have actors who have a great technique and who are less good, and you have actor who has uh, uh, um, also a great technique and who can be tremendous. Gabin had everything. Yeah. He, he, knew, he knew the screenplay by heart. He knew. He had, he had, and he always, a little bit like Philippe Noiret, he always wanted you to believe that he had not worked. Right. Uh, but but he, had, he had done his own work. He never worked never wanted to speak about it. I mean, he's a, 
when he was talking about character, he didn't. He was not spending half day psychoanalyzing the character. He said to a friend of mine, when he was playing an educator in a in a in a in a jail, uh, in a jail, he said, "I will play it without being patronizing." You didn't have to to add anything. He had the character in one line. One, I think of all the, th I, I left with such an appreciation for so much of French cinema and, 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 and made me, your movie made me want to watch movies endlessly. Uh, the, the part that I really learned quite a bit though about that I didn't know was um, the background and just the amazing music mm -hmm. of French cinema from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Mm -hmm. And in which is, it's clearly a passion of yours as well, just the music itself. But you make a point in the film, I was wondering if you could talk about it. Why, why do you think the French, in transitioning to sound, uh, were able to so quickly um, incorporate great music and, and, and great composition? Because the system was different than in America. As I said, in America, for a long time, the director was not associated to the music of the film. Sometimes it was done after mm -hmm. uh, he left the film. Sometimes uh, I remember John Ford telling me, he said, I was meeting the composer and the only, the only thing I was telling him is, is try not to ruin my film. <laughs> so put as little music as you can. And most of the time he was asking for some folk songs like uh, Red River Valley or mm -hmm. things like that to be played on accordion. I mean, that's... Uh, 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 because the studio, uh, the studio, I mean, of course there have been some exceptions, but most of the time, I don't, I don't know if Michael Curtis worked with Erivan von Gorgon. I don't know what kind of relationship they had. Uh, um, uh, on the opposite, a lot of French directors loved music. And they were, they were, they, they were able to pick up the composer. It, it's, it's surprising the number of um, of directors who worked seven, eight, nine, ten times with the same composer, right. and who picked it up each time. Autant Lara who did seventeen films with the same composer, and only one. During 17 films, there was no other composer on his film than the guy. So that meant they had a real relationship. Duvivier, when Julien Duvivier, a great music lover, I mean, does a film about Christ called Golgotha. The first card of the movie is a film by Julien Duvivier on the same card, music by Jacques Hibert. He put the musician with him Mm -hmm. on the first card. Uh, uh, many, many, uh, uh, many directors were... Uh, uh, Jean Grémillon was a wonderful director, but he composed the music of several of his films. Mm -hmm. He was a composer himself, and he worked very closely with the composer of his film. So you had directors who had ideas which did not exist in the American cinema. It existed in The Third Man mm -hmm. with Carol Reed, and, and it was a fight to impose a sitar of The Third Man. 
But I mean, you had René Clément, who, the guitar of Forbidden Gifts. You had Becker, the harmonica of the Grisby. Louis Malle, Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. At a time where most of the film score were symphonic orchestra. You have uh, Robert Bresson, who very early chose to have only classical music in his film. Mozart, or Lully, or Couperin, in at least three of his films. Only classical music. Mm -hmm. Nobody else is doing that. So I want to point out that. I want to point out the number of great classical composers who did score from French cinema. People like uh, Darius Milo, people like Arthur Honegger. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they wrote beautiful, beautiful scores. And they were classical musicians. And the influence was different. The French musicians were influenced by Debussy and by Kurt Weill. Mm. The American. There is very, it's more very, like bronze. Uh -huh. It's more. It's more. It's the other school. It's the Vienna school, right? For, yeah, for Americans. Yeah. I mean, the American films. Most of the composers were coming from Vienna. Uh -huh. From uh, very little jazz in right. the American film of the thirties, or only the jazz to show uh, when you are dealing with prostitution or drugs <laughs> or crime. <laughs> huh? <laughs> <laughs> and most of the time, it's. Uh, it's a music which is uh, coming from Brahms, right. from uh, Bruckner, from all those beautiful composers from the 19th century. When the French were more modern, more, uh, uh, I mean, look, if you look at the, the orchestra of Maurice Jobert, very few people, very few people. Yeah. When so Miklos Rosa, you had uh, for, for and, and and his music is great, mm. and superb, but it's it's an enormous uh, <laughs> symphonic orchestra. Well, we need to wrap up. Thank you okay. so much. This okay. movie was fantastic. Um, everybody should go see it. it. It'll get you excited about cinema. Okay. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.